All right, well, go ahead and grab your Bible, open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we are um, in a part two from last week. Part one last week was dealing with the Lord's Prayer, the first half of that prayer. Now we are in the second half of that prayer that uh, everybody kind of knows, everybody's very familiar with. Over the past three weeks, we have been focused in on prayer and talking about this topic of prayer because it is so essential to our life. Now, it has been my hope that you maybe have been engaging in prayer uh, throughout these three weeks. Maybe it's hopefully really longer than that that you've been engaging in prayer, but maybe it's been different over these past three weeks as you have maybe been gaining some new knowledge about prayer, some new insights about prayer. But knowledge only becomes wisdom when it's put into application. So, maybe you've been gaining lots of knowledge, but not a whole lot of wisdom is actually happening. If we are simply content at gaining knowledge, but not actually doing anything with that knowledge, I say that makes us fools, that we are not doing anything with it. That this, this is a foolish thing to do. Now, not praying is not only foolish, but it's actually robbing us of joy, a joy that can be had. As we spend time in prayer, our burdens get lighter. The mountains of our problems become molehills. The more time we spend with the Lord, the smaller the problems get, and the clearer things get as well. This all brings with it a a sense of joy, a joy that we all have been looking for, we all want, we We know it's even out there, but how do we attain it? And prayer is this way. But prayer is hard work. Prayer is not easy. Why is this? Because it conflicts with our sinful nature. The nature that doesn't want relationship with God, that pushes back from Him. And also it conflicts with other people's plans for our time. The time in which maybe your kids have in mind for your time, or your neighbor, or somebody else has for your time. And so your time is depleted, and you feel as though you don't have time to pray. Well, as the old saying goes, nothing great comes easy. And this is true about your relationship with God. If you want a great relationship with the Lord, then you have to spend time with Him. This is, this is true, which means that you have to let go of other things that might consume your time. These could be good things, great things, enjoyable things, things like other people, or hobbies, or kids' activities, or simply sleeping in. Maybe you enjoy that a little too long. If you want something different, then you have to do something different. If you have this idea that, well, I can just keep doing the same things and keep the same pattern of life but then expect circumstances to change or things to change or people to change. If you don't change, this is crazy. This is insanity, right? Like That's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So if you want something different, you have to do something different. Now, Satan wants things for you, but they're not good things. And, And how does he want these things for you? How does he want these bad things for you? He wants you to sleep in. He wants you to consume yourself with activities and hobbies and entertainment. Why does he want this for you? He wants these things for you so that your relationship with the Lord will diminish. It will decrease. 
and there will be distance between you and your Father. Now, when something is important to us, what do we usually do with that important thing? Will we sacrifice to get it, or we sacrifice to keep it, right? If we really see something and prioritize it as a really valuable thing, we treat it as such. So why is it that prayer seems to be fairly unimportant to Christians? Why is that? I think it's because Jesus is already an add-on or a tack-on to their life. He is not central. He is not preeminent in their life. He is just another thing that happens occasionally on the weekend. And He is not really that important. Now, last week we looked at the first half of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and verse 9 as it starts with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Which means His name is preeminent. It should be holier, greater than anything else in this world. And the first half of this prayer that we looked at last week gives us a right perspective of God. We see His priorities. What is His priority? It is His name. It is His kingdom. It is His will. How should we pray? With that same priority. How should we live our life? With that same priority. And what this does for us, it frames our view of the world and of ourselves so that when we get to the second part of this prayer, our needs, we pray them rightly. God, He is to be hallowed. Why is this? Why should He be seen as the most glorious? Because of who He is. You know the three omnis? Omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. This is who He is. We, on the other hand, as we will see today from our passage, we are incapable of getting even the most basic of life's needs taken care of. We need help with these things. We need His help with these basic needs which is what the second half of this Lord's Prayer deals with, our inability to provide and to protect ourselves. And so Jesus is leading us to this understanding that we need to train our hearts to trust in the Lord for every daily need. Daily need. It's not just when things are going bad or things are not going well that we need to pray. We need to ask God to do something. Jesus tells us in this prayer daily. These are daily things that we should pray. And so this will be our focus this morning, to focus on our daily prayer. So let's look at this, this passage again, verses 9 through 13. Again, you're very familiar with this, but it doesn't hurt us at all to read it again, does it? So let's look at verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now last week I gave you the the first half of this prayer. It said that there were six requests that Jesus is helping us with. This is the fourth one we find in verse 11, and the request is for our daily bread. Now, our bodies, as they were created in the beginning, they were created dependent, right? 
Adam and Eve in the garden were created in the image of God, but they were not created to be God. This is where sin came into the world, thinking that they could be more like God, even though that they were already made in the image of God. And what they attempted to do was to become Him. And this was not their place. This is not how we should think, that we will be like Him in that sense. God is completely self-sustained. He is totally autonomous. He needs nothing to function. He needs no addition to his life or supplement to his life so that he can exist. He is who he is. He is the I am. This is who he is. Our bodies, on the other hand, our existence, we need daily things, don't we? We need food, we need water, we need sleep. And even whenever we get those things, even the right combination, we don't always peak out in our performance, do we? Some of us might need some exercise, which would help some of that, right? And so into our thinking, into our existence, Jesus has given instruction for us to pray and to pray for these daily basic provisions. We are, I think, at a great disadvantage in America because of our abundance. Most Americans are not starving and they have not experienced real starvation. I mean... In, in scientific matters, you can actually last three weeks without eating, and you can, you can live for three weeks. It's not a, a great existence, but you can exist. Of course, we think whenever we are maybe 30 minutes or an hour late to lunch that we're starving, right? Or if you have children, five minutes after they've eaten lunch, they're starving, right? So our perception or th- our thought about what do we really need, like it's so distorted because of our abundance. We open up the, the cupboard of the pantry and we go, ah, oh, there's nothing to eat in here. When there's all kinds of food in there, we mean I just don't want what's in here, right? Now, this is, I think, one of the problems that we have as Americans. Our abundance has created a lack of sincerity, a lack of humility, when we then go to pray for our meals and thank God for our meals. As most of us probably will do at lunch today, that you will pray and thank God for your meal, but will it really involve a true sincerity and humility that God has provided that meal? I think sincerity and humility is definitely in the prayer of a mother that lives on $2 a day trying to feed five of her children. She knows that if God does not provide, if God does not move, if God does not work, that day and the day after, they don't eat. It is a prayer of desperation. And desperation can be a great motivator, can't it? A great motivator for us to pray and for us to rely upon the Lord. Our bodies are fragile. The older we get, the more we experience this, right? The more we realize how fragile we really are. And just as Gary shared the story from this 22-year-old, his body was fragile. But so are other things that we rely upon, such as maybe our supply chains as Americans. All of these things are fragile. Another thing about this verse that Jesus gives us perspective on is the perspective about the body itself. He is telling us that it is not worthless or unimportant, that the body actually has value. Now, there was teaching that was going around at this time 
and also even going around today that, well, the body's not really that important. It's not really an essential thing to life. It's really just about the spiritual matters, and we just focus on the spirit. That's all that really matters in this life. But this is not true. He teaches us that God does care about our bodies and the needs of our physical existence. Why? Because he says to ask for what? Daily bread. So if it has no importance, then why would he tell us to pray such a thing? So to view the body as unspiritual or even sinful would be a contradiction to the words of Jesus. It is common, I think, for Christians to to look at themselves, to look at the, the Christian life and say, well, there's the spiritual element and then there's the physical element and there's these, this great divide between them and sometimes they overlap, but not really, not most of the time. Well, this prayer, I think, is indicating that there is no such divide. This is not how we should think. This is not how we should pray. So one of the realities is, is that it is okay for us to pray for physical needs. It's okay to do that. And I know maybe often you're tempted to only think, well, only spiritual things matter, only spiritual, only spiritual, but this is not in this prayer. Yes, spiritual things. Prioritize your life around the will of God, the kingdom of God, the glory of God, but you still have to exist. You still have to be here. And so you can pray for these things. Both the spirit and the body are important to God, and he will provide for both. Even though, even though God is transcendent, He is beyond us, He is the sovereign Lord of all, He is still, as verse 9 tells us, our Father in heaven, which means He is still near to us. The nearness of God should encourage us to ask Him to provide for the things that are essential to life. If He was distant and off somewhere and so far disconnected from us, then we might be tempted to think, well, he doesn't really care. He doesn't really, he shouldn't really concern himself with bread. But this is not how we are told to pray. We are told to pray for the nearness of God. And in his nearness, he will provide these things that we need, these essentials for life. Why? Because we are his children. Now, in chapter 7 of Matthew, which was read by Scott this morning, in verses 7 through 11, we are told by Jesus, this is the same, the same sermon that Jesus gave in Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 of Matthew, that God gives good gifts to His children. What does God want to give you as His child? Good things. The Lord provides for His children, just as any good parent would provide for their children because they love their children. But Jesus makes the point in chapter 7 that they are evil, and even in their evil, they know how to give good gifts to their children. So he then begs the question of them, how much more will the perfect God of all things give perfect gifts to his children? And I want to use that word perfect because, again, we sometimes distort and we make the word good subjective. This is not who God is. He is perfect which means the balance that is there of spirit and physical being is constantly in his view when he gives things to you. So when something physical is given to you or taken from you, whether that be food or your health, God has at the same time a balance of your spirit. We don't usually think this way, do we? We usually think my toe hurts and so I'm going to pray only about my toe, not about how my toe affects my spirit. 
But God, what he does with you is when he gives things or takes things away from you, he has this in perfect balance because he's a perfect father. So it's not just one thing is over the other, but he keeps them working in perfect unity because he is perfectly unified in himself. And as his child, he, he treats you the same way. He wants this to happen in your life. He knows what is best for you. He knows what's best in your physical being and in your spiritual being. Not only do we rely upon God for the physical needs that we have daily, but we should rely upon Him for the spiritual need that we have. So when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan's first temptation was to turn the stones into bread. Why? Because Jesus was hungry. He had been fasting for 40 days. But Jesus responds to the temptation of Satan by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Did Jesus need bread? Yes. He was physically hungry, but at the same time, he understood that a person is more than just a physical being. And so he resists the temptation of Satan. And Jesus models perfectly how we should think, how we should act as we are being tempted to give into the physical weaknesses in which we have, even the most basic everyday weakness of eating. We should be reminded in our physical need of a greater need that every person has spiritually, a need that we, we often don't even perceive or really think about, and that is the deep spiritual need of our souls being nourished. This is where fasting, I think, can be very helpful for us because we, we purposely miss meals in order to feel the pains of hunger so that we are reminded in our spirit of the hunger that we need for God. So we feel it physically, and it should trigger in our minds that our spirit needs God daily. So if you haven't fasted, if you haven't worked that into the spiritual disciplines of your life, I, I, would, I would challenge you to do such a thing, especially in regards to prayer. We, we see those two working in tandem most of the time through Scripture of prayer and fasting. We see that in Jesus before He's tempted. He fasts through all of this time of being tempted. And He comes out on top. He comes out above Satan as He would because He is the Son of God. And man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus is the Word. Jesus also teaches us in John chapter 6 that He is the nourishment that we need. He is the bread of life, as he says in chapter 6 of John. He also, in that same chapter, in that same passage, that same teaching, says that it is his blood that brings eternal life. Now, he uses this metaphor of eating his flesh and drinking his blood to point to a spiritual reality that everyone has the same spiritual need, that life needs to be given to them. And if you have not partaken in the sacrifice of Jesus for you, then you do not have eternal life. Now there were many who heard that teaching of Jesus in John chapter 6, and they turned away from following Jesus when He said these things. They heard this and they said, these are hard things. And a huge group of people left. And people are still walking away from this kind of teaching, but it is only this kind of teaching that will bring 
real salvation to a soul that is dead. We need Him. When we pray for our physical needs on a daily basis, we should be reminded of the great sacrifice that was made for us on our behalf, the substitution of Jesus Christ. The bread that we need daily is not merely physical, but it's also spiritual. The drink that we need daily is Him. Just as we partake of food and drink on a daily basis to sustain our physical life, we need, we need the spiritual food, the spiritual drink that will sustain us. And the amazing thing about who Jesus is, is that He is eternal. And because of His eternality, this means there will be no shortage of food or drink. That's good news. That's really good news. He can never be depleted. And we need only to eat once of the bread of life in order to have eternal life. Everyone who comes to Jesus Christ for their eternal spiritual needs will have them satisfied. This is the promise of Jesus. If you remember also, the the woman at the well, what he tells her, he asks for a drink and she's like, well, you don't have anything, you don't have any bucket or anything. And then he moves right into what you need is living water. And if you partake of this living water, it will create in you a, a wellspring of life, which means it will not run dry. It will be ever producing, eternally producing. And who, who is that life-giving water? It is none other than Jesus Christ. He will bring satisfaction to your spiritual needs. So let me ask you this question. In, in light of this this perfect balance that God has in mind for you spiritually and physically, what daily provision have you not been asking God for? Maybe it's physical. Maybe there's a physical need that you actually really legitimately do have and you have just not been asking for His help. You've passed it off as, well, it's just my diagnosis. It's just who I am. It's just what I deal with. And so you you don't pray about it. You don't pray for His help. You don't pray for for anything to be done with that physical need. Or maybe it's a spiritual thing that's going on in your life. And again, both of those things are connected. And so if you neglect the spiritual or you neglect the physical and not praying for those things, what are we saying to God? I think partly what we're saying is that we don't need you. We don't want you. What is the daily provision that you've not been asking God for? Jesus tells us to pray for those things. The fifth request that Jesus brings up to us in verse 12 is a prayer to forgive us our debts. Look at verse 12 again. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now this section of the prayer has generated some confusion as to what is meant by Jesus whenever he says this. Some have taken this to mean that we must forgive in order, us, in order for us to be forgiven by God. And if we don't, then we are eternally lost. So if we don't exercise forgiveness, then we, we are not saved. But this would not be the right interpretation of this verse because we know that our salvation is based upon the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, not based upon our works, such as forgiving other people. So the context here is, is also important. 
of Jesus' teaching as he's talking about the Lord's Prayer, this instruction he gives, this form that he gives. He starts with the words what? Our Father. Our Father. So the context here is really important, which indicates that this prayer is for a child of God, not an enemy of God. The standing of the individual matters because Jesus is talking about a child addressing their father, not a person standing before the eternal judge of all things. This is a matter of sanctification, not justification. So the prayer is dealing with sanctification, not your justification. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul writes these words, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? It means that you've repented of your sins, you've trusted in the work of Christ, and because of that, you've partaken of the bread of life, you've partaken of that wellspring of life, and you have eternal life. He has conquered the grave. He has set you free from the condemnation of God. You are not bound by your sin any longer. And so we have been justified before God based upon Jesus's eternality and not upon our finite accomplishments or lack of accomplishments. The great late J.I. Packer wrote these words. He said, the Lord's prayer is the family prayer in which God's adopted children address their father and though their daily failures do not overthrow their justification, things will not be right between them and their father till they have said, sorry, and asked him to overlook the ways they have let him down. When we were justified by Jesus, by the work of Jesus, he washed, past tense, your sins away. In the present tense of this prayer, we are asking God to wash away, present tense, our daily sins, which is part of the process of sanctification. When we were justified by the work of Christ, we were also adopted into the family of God. We have this all over the Scriptures. John chapter 1 is a great place to look at that. Now that we are adopted children, we are being trained or sanctified to be holy so that we can do the priorities of God, which are to hallow His name, which are to see His kingdom come, which are to see His will being done. This is who we are. Now, all of this happens, the sanctification process happens by the Holy Spirit being given to you, in you, and by the Father's instruction to you, and by our older brother, Jesus' example. So the, the work of the Trinity is happening in your sanctification, just as the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Father, the work of the Son was happening in your justification. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm too deep, I don't know. Uh, hopefully you're tracking here. There is a separation of these two, and this prayer is for the child of God. We are not earning our rights to be forgiven by forgiving other people. It's not that, well, I've, you know, I've, I've forgiven Jeremy, so, okay, God, give it to me. I earned it. This is not how we should think. Rather, we are demonstrating that we have been forgiven by being forgiving to others. We are demonstrating that we are we are children of God because we act like Him. At the core of this verse is the gospel message of God's great mercy and great grace in forgiving God-hating enemies 
and their treason against him. He has forgiven you far more than you could ever forgive anyone else that has ever hurt you in any way. He has forgiven your sin far deeper, far wider than anyone else that could ever do anything to you. You have, forgive, you have been forgiven much. And with much forgiveness should mean there is much forgiveness in you. Christian, you have no excuse to not forgive. You have no excuse. And if you, you refuse forgiveness, then I think it's a very real possibility that you have never been forgiven by God in a justification sense. As in, I wonder if you're actually a child of God. Praying for God to forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others, it forces us to reflect upon His amazing grace toward us. And it should motivate us to act just like our Father in heaven. Just as we reflect upon, Lord, please forgive me my debts and I need to forgive others. This is how you think. This is how you treat me, Father. This is how we should think. The new nature of a Christian should lead to new and different behaviors, like forgiving others who have wronged you, who have hurt you. You will, you will, today even, sin against God. That might be a new revelation to you. But you will sin against Him today. In, in, in some form or fashion, it's probably going to happen. It is true. It's unavoidable. And while we are in these bodies, this will be a daily thing that we will fight against. A daily thing that we should be at war with. This is also true of other people. Whenever they sin against you, this will probably happen on a daily basis. And it is also true that you are probably going to sin against other people on a daily basis. I don't think, again, I've given you any new information. You should already know these things to be true. So what do you need daily? Forgiveness. You need forgiveness from God, you need forgiveness from others, and you need to forgive others daily. And so we pray, we ask that God would grant forgiveness to us daily as we move toward a, 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 a picture of Christ to other people, that He is holy, and we try to be holy because our Father is holy. And this is only possible because of the work of the Spirit in you. It is the instruction of the Father. It is the example of the Son. And so we pray this fifth thing, that we would be forgiven our debts as we forgive others. The sixth instruction, the sixth request that Jesus tells us to pray for is in verse 13. He says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Seminary President Al Mohler says this. He says, In the heart lacking prayer, Satan easily sows temptation. In the heart, lacking prayer, Satan easily sows temptation. This is a prayer that is needed prayed daily. Daily praying this at the beginning of the day, but also throughout the day, is really important. As we have established earlier, we are extremely weak, we dependent creatures. We, we need God's help constantly in our existence, physically and spiritually. 
And this is just another evidence of that truth. This final petition that Jesus instructs us to pray is about the daily fight that we are in. But it's not just a fight. It is a war in which we are in. A war against sin. Which means that there are strategies and there are deceptions that are happening all of the time in order to destroy us. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 6.12 where he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This means physical people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul is saying we are at war. This is not just some scuffle that we're having, some, some friendly wrestling match with a neighbor. No, we are at war against things that want to kill us, destroy us, ruin us. And then if you are in Ephesians 6, you will notice what Paul then goes into. Paul then goes on to say to take up the armor of God because we are in a war. Again, you're not in a wrestling match with sin. You are at war with sin. And Christian, if you are not at war with sin, what are you doing with sin? He instructs us to put on the protection that we need to pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then notice in verse 18 of chapter 6 of Ephesians how he ties up the armor of God and he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. How do we fight the darkness that is so prevalent in our own hearts and so prevalent in the world around us? Paul gives us that instruction as Jesus has given us that instruction in chapter 6, verse 13 of Matthew. We pray. Prayer is how this happens. Praying at all times in the Spirit is how we fight back the darkness in our own hearts and in the world that is pushing and pressing in on us. This praying is not singular, hopefully, as you notice. It is not singular. It involves a corporate mindset, and Paul reaffirms that in Ephesians 6.18, as he says, making supplication for all the saints. So our prayers for protection and temptation and uh, and deliverance from Satan's schemes should be church-focused, our brothers and sisters-focused. So as we pray for these things to happen, we should pray in this manner, in a corporate mindset. Let me give you an example of this. As you get to know each other better, as, as we, as a congregation, as a family here, As we get to know each other better through seeing each other at worship gatherings like this one and going deeper in conversation other than how's the weather, but we get into deeper conversations and deeper personal things of each other's lives involving ourselves with maybe the ministries of the church or several ministries of the church and possibly even getting involved in a life group, we start to gain information about one another on a deeper level a very personal, intimate level, a spiritual level, well, then we know how to pray prayers of relevance for their life. So if you don't really know anyone on a deeper level in the church, then 
how can you pray specifically about their protection from certain temptations or praying for their deliverance from from the works of Satan in their life and around their life if you don't really know what's going on in their life? I would say you really can't. Now, you can, you can throw out some generic prayer. You can be very broad in, in what you pray for. But I think as, as we think about the body of Christ and, and the members of this specific church, we should know each other. You must be known among the congregation, and you must actually be a part of the congregation. Here at First Baptist, we have a church covenant that establishes six points of what does it mean to be a member here. It is called a covenant because contracts really only involve one aspect of you, but a covenant involves the whole person. Being a member here means that you are giving others the right their rights to hold you accountable to your behaviors, to your attitudes, and to the direction of your life. The decisions that you're making that you think are unaffecting anybody else, they actually do affect the body. Whether it be about your relationships or your job or the things that you said online, like these are all affecting the whole which means whenever you are part of this church and you give yourself to these people, you are giving them the right to pray for you in a deep and meaningful way. What you are agreeing to do is you are agreeing to open up your life to them so that they know about the temptations which you face, they know the strategies that Satan is working in your life, and they know how to pray for you specifically. And they can pray this prayer in verse 13 quite accurately for you that that God would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you've been on the edge of church membership or as a member here, you have remained relatively anonymous, that needs to change today. That needs to change today because you're at war. You're at war with sin. And you need help. It is for your personal protection against the schemes of the devil and the evil schemes of your own heart that you need the church. You need each other. You need each other to pray. And a disconnect from the local church, I believe, will develop a disconnect from the Father. Eventually, I think this will happen. Now this request that Jesus tells us to pray is helping to again turn our attention away from our strengths or away from our willpower. Notice in the temptations of Jesus how how He handled those temptations. He He turned to the strength that God provides. And this prayer, it is a prayer that directs our attention to His strength, to His power, and away from us. This prayer as a whole is a confession of our extreme need of the Lord's intervention in the daily life that we have, that we live. We need Him spiritually. We need Him physically. Jesus told His disciples toward the end of His life in John chapter 15, verse 5, He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in Him He, it is, that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Apart from our relationship with Jesus, we can accomplish 
nothing of eternal significance. And without the providential work of God in our life, we can really do nothing at all. I think most of us know this. But as I said at the beginning, knowledge is only wisdom if it's applied. How are you going to apply the principles of the Lord's Prayer, of this prayer, this very short, very practical prayer? Well, we as a church, we are having an opportunity for you that is to do something radically different than your normal routine of things. And I say radical because it's just out of the ordinary. But I think it probably should be something ordinary that happens with us as a church. On Friday, 6 o'clock, we're meeting in this room. We're going to pray together. We're going to start a 24-hour prayer vigil where we can just get away from the distractions of work, of the world, of home. We can come to a place that, again, we, we have a habit of worshiping and praising God in, and, and so it will help us in a mindset for at least 30 minutes to pray and to be alone with our Father. And our, our intention in this is to give you an excuse. To give you an excuse to pray. And so whenever your friend texts you or calls you, like, hey, you want to go out Friday night? And you're like, mm, I'm busy. i got plans. I'm praying. We want to give you an excuse to deny other things that might creep into your life and rob you of things that really would bring greater joy. We'll have some things here to help you in prayer. If you want to bring a friend with you to pray, we're okay with those things, but we want you to pray. What I'm going to ask you to do right now is to spend just a few minutes in prayer. To personally pray. Then I'll lead us in prayer. But again, Use Matthew 6 as your guide, as your instruction. Let me read it one last time for us before you pray. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Would you pray?